Hello, and welcome to another edition of We Ain't Got No Podcast, SB Nation's Chelsea's We Ain't Got No History official podcast. And uh, before I get started here today, I'm sure most people hearing my voice have have seen this, um, but if you haven't, uh, you know, the, our site manager, my boss, so to speak, David Pastor, uh, he was he was uh, got, got a really cool deal from Trivago here with the trip to Orlando for Chelsea and got to go out there to Orlando and and come in and kind of get some get some merch and kind of be brought into the festivities. And then, of course, what makes more is funny now that he was also um, part of sort of the one of those prank videos with Mason Mount and Kai Havertz and Callum Hudson Adoy. Um, so if you haven't got a chance to see that out, it was actually on Chelsea's FC's Twitter uh, account today. They put out a video where they were kind of uh, had edited it all up for that. And uh, David's got some pretty pretty priceless uh, facial expressions, particularly when they're when they're making him change clothes and all that. I he handled it pretty well. But I thought uh, since most of you folks out there know hearing the sound of my voice know who that is, David, and he was of course guest on this podcast just a few episodes ago. Um, make make sure and check that out. But uh, joining me today to talk Chelsea 22-23 season preview, uh, the most regular guest of the pod and someone that has a bit of, uh, as long as I've known you, a little bit of the Chelsea encyclopedia. So who better to have on than, than Mr. Julian Bravo to talk a little, uh, get a little excitement going for the season. Julian, how are you? I am well. Thanks for having me again. I'm really excited about the season starting. It never feels right when Chelsea is not playing week in, week out. So I'm just super excited to have our football back. Oh man, you and me both. And I think I think this is going to be a good one. I think you and I, uh, we, we purposely uh, held back some of our conversations that we normally have so that we can have them in this space. Um, and I think, like you said, it's such a hard time of year when there is no football. And I think... Um, you know, we, we don't have we don't actually have action to review week in, week out. So we have all this time going by with transfers and different different things happening in the world. And and I'm always fascinated at the different perceptions of of of, of journalists, fans, uh, people within the club on how they're feeling generally uh, about the club and the season, even though no football has been played. I mean, obviously, a lot going on that's shaping the club and this and that. So so let so let's just start there, Julian, if you don't mind and, and kind of kind of talk you know we we where we were at the end of last season I think it was a little bit of a a, a tough run in results wise it was real clear we weren't going to be in that league title fight with Liverpool or City we had that sort of kind of no man's land there on the island in third place and we probably let the pack obviously got a lot closer to catching us than we did to catching uh, Liverpool or City but that's kind of where we left off last season sort of this we were third uh, we, we, we do, you know, I think city and Liverpool still expected to be, you know, very difficult to chase down for the rest of the pack. I see a lot of people talking about, you know, Chelsea should still kind of be in that third spot, but you know, I think there's a, there's not a lot of consensus about, you know, what's Tottenham going to be like, what's Arsenal going to be like, is Man United going to be quite the disaster they look like they might be. So Julian, tell me, start me there. Where, where do you feel generally at the end from the end of last season to where we are positioned here today? Um, kind of. How do you feel um, from where we were to where we are now? Well, I'll actually go back a little further just to last season at the start of this season, me and you both had a little bit of a discussion as to where we thought Chelsea were going to finish. And while there was a lot of optimism that we were going to be genuine title contenders, neither of us bought into that narrative. And you picked Chelsea to finish third. And I, not realizing that Manchester United would be a complete disaster, actually picked us to finish fourth. So Neither of us necessarily had the most optimism going into last season. And being completely honest, there's even less optimism going into this season for me, as I can't help but feel like with the transition we're going through, there are too many moving parts and too many moving pieces that a club that wasn't already on SETI Foundation is even on less of a SETI Foundation at this point. And it's kind of concerning because we're kind of on thin ice. Our rivals are catching up to us, and we don't seem to be improving much, if at all. One of the things I have a difficult time with, even inside my own head, in my own thought process, but is really going to come to play here, is how do you start forming this conversation? There are so many balls in the air or, or moving parts that to try to sort of kind of step back and look at them whole cloth and have some general feeling that's where I'm really running into a challenge here. But, but I share your, um, 
Ah, oh, man, I, I, I feel bad because I do think last year I had a, I had a little more of a feeling of like, OK, I, I don't think we're anywhere near City or Liverpool, but I feel fairly bullish that we can beat the rest, the best of the rest. We can be the best of the rest. I, I really don't know that right now. Um, that is not to be hemming and hawing completely. But I think if I had to call out like a like a position finish, I'd probably say fourth would be my prediction. But I would do that partly because I don't. There's several teams that could be in that third spot ahead of ahead of us, and and I and I, I'm not sure. So, um, you know, I think for me is there. There's a lot of moving parts internally at our club, but I also feel a little less sure of how to how to analyze uh, in preseason, particularly teams like Arsenal and Tottenham, um, and how they how they may, how they may fit in around us as well. Yeah, and looking at the clubs around us, I feel like they are all improving. We weren't significantly better than the rest of the pack. We, The issues at Manchester United are something that are actually a little bit more easy to solve than I think a lot of people are realizing. They have a really good squad in general. They're just lacking in certain positions. And if they can kind of fill those out, then Manchester United should be in the same sort of breath as Tottenham and Arsenal. Those are the two clubs that are trending in really positive directions, most specifically, I feel, because of Antonio Conte. And I've always found him to be one of the best managers in the world. His time with us was really impressive. And the more time he's going to be at that club, the scarier they're going to be. And they seem to have been doing pretty well for themselves this offseason. So I am most concerned about Tottenham. And I think if you ask me right now where I expected us to finish, I, I would just kind of by default actually pick us fifth, but I can easily see us going anywhere from third all the way down to maybe even seventh place. Yes, I I agree with you on that. Like I say, if I had to take from from most seasons at this position, I think there's a higher, you know, from the ceiling to the floor, there's a much larger range here right now. And I agree with you. That's third to seventh. And, you know, I think that's... Again, you know, you always want to be optimistic going into a season. It's no fun to think like, man, we're just going to be worse this season. And I don't necessarily think that. But there are some things that I have um, some some real question marks at. And I think that we it makes sense to me that our business has been frenetic this summer, to say the least. I mean, you could use words that were more harsh than that, maybe naive, maybe, you know, you've seen various things come out. But I mean, just the just the uh, Barcelona Chelsea merry-go-round in the transfer window alone has kind of been a circus. Um, but for me, I'm I'm willing to I just don't know how we could expect a lot more. We've made some impressive signings. And, and frankly, if we go back to a couple months before the end of the season, we couldn't sell match day tickets because we had frozen our our club was a frozen asset by a by a government. We had to make a sale. You know, you and I spent what an hour and a half and could have spent five hours talking about Abramovich and that entire legacy. That's you know to to flip over and we've yet to play a single meaningful match in the not in the Bowley era or the Clear Lake Capital era. It, it it's it's man, this is a big big change in the in not only what's this new era for us, but in what we've had to actually accomplish in the same time that some of these rivals we're talking about were getting really meaningful business done, or at least having those conversations, making targets. So for me, I'm willing to give some pass to the frenetic energy that Chelsea has had in the window this summer because I guess that's I don't see how it could have been a lot different. That being said, I still think. The grade for this and whether or not I feel more at ease than I do now is what's left to be done in the transfer window. And that is very uns- unsettling as we sit here just a few days before our first match at Goodison Park. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think kind of the tricky way to describe this is we're basically like a, I don't want to use American sports to compare this, but a basketball team that's not good enough to compete, but is also not good enough to be bad and get themselves a lottery pick or a top draft pick to make them better in the future. We're kind of stuck in this middle ground. And I heard somebody say this about Arsenal. Arsenal did a true rebuild. They started from scratch. They basically offloaded anybody that wasn't good for the club and wasn't part of Mikel Arteta's future. They fully invested in him and said, we're going to start from scratch and we're actually going to rebuild. Now, when it comes to Chelsea, it seems like we've been caught in both worlds for 
as long as I can actually think back at this point, because we keep bringing in these managers that don't want to start from scratch. The closest thing is maybe Frank Lampard, but even then he said himself that he expected to succeed. The club expects him to succeed and compete for trophies. So he came in with this, let's get the results now mindset, as opposed to the let's be better in four or five years sort of mindset. And I think it's all kind of come crashing down on this new ownership group because not only did they pick up from the mess that we had, now they don't really seem to have a good direction of where they're trying to go from this point on. It's just kind of a perfect storm of bad results, honestly. Yeah, I think I agree with you in that. And in, and in particular, you know, I guess that's where I'm at, where it's like this, if I had to grade this so far, it's a it's a massive incomplete grade because there is, I, I don't have enough context with the people we're talking about here to say, well, they did this last summer and this the year before, or how, this is new. And I think that, you know, 12 months from now, we're going to have so much more color, so much more perspective on this time right now, because we'll be able to look back and say, wow, that's, that was chaotic or that was sort of, it did kind of work out or again, hindsight's twenty twenty. but I think in this particular case, it's, you know, it, it is, I feel like I'm, you know, flying blind here at the, at the start. However, you know, not to just be completely, completely vague and, you know, general and shrug and say, who knows what'll happen. You know, there are some specific things that I, that I do feel pretty positively about, and we won't turn this into a into a transfer window podcast. But if you talk about the actual business done by Chelsea to this point, and, and as we sit here now, you know, Mark Gagreya is, is, is not a Chelsea player. We, by the time you and I wake up tomorrow, he may be, um, there's Frankie de Jong conversation there, there, you know, we could, we could talk 40 minutes alone just on player names that are being brought up right now, but for the business done and the players that are going to be a big part of the Chelsea first team here, I mean, Obviously, Raheem Sterling and Koulibaly are kind of the two major ones. And then this week, we bring in uh, Slanina, the goalkeeper from the Chicago Fire, uh, who will be one for the future, going to go back to Chicago to finish the season on loan. And then my most, my personal most exciting signing of the summer is Carney Chukwameka, because I, I watched quite a lot of him to, this summer for the, I, I believe it was the U21 English team, Golly, talk about a guy that could dominate a match. And again, at that level, it's not going to be transitioned right out to Chelsea. But at that age, to have, uh, you know, he's played what, like six? He's played he's played double digit Premier League matches. He started in a few. I I think he's a player that it's 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 strange to think about Chelsea and some of our young guys that are right there that may not be getting the time we want to see them have. But I'm not sure Carney's going anywhere. I think he may stick around and be on the fringes of the first team. And not only that, be a big part of the future team. So, uh, you know, um, that that to me actually was, was kind of the standout, not standout signing. But it told me something because, you know, it's interesting at the same time, you know, people are frustrated that there may not be opportunities for some of these young players. And we're still waiting to find out about Colwell. There is obviously two different approaches in this transfer market to bring in top, top players now, like Koulibaly, like Koulibaly, like Sterling, but also to have this, this is not, doesn't seem to be a sellout for now and mortgaging the future. I, I don't know. What are your thoughts there? Oh, that is, that is tricky. All of that is really tricky. I will be completely honest. I know nothing about that signing from Aston Villa. I took a brief look at him and saw he had a handful of appearances for them, but I would be lying if I said I had too much familiarity with him. I think my big question I had when I saw we signed him was who came up with this idea? Because when Bully came in, he overhauled everything. So there wasn't necessarily a scouting network that would have gone up to him and said, hey, we like this guy from Villa. He's amazing. We've been watching him for years. We think he'd be a great signing. So it's not like they had some sort of backroom scout that's been looking at this for years. And at the same time, he's not a household name. So I don't imagine that Tuchel was like, I've seen this guy. This is the player I want. I'm confused as to how he came around to this signing. It's just interesting to me in that way. I will probably never understand how that came to be, but I hope he's every bit as good as you and a lot of other people have said. He could play a role in the first team. I don't know enough about him to make that assessment, 
But as far as the other signings go, I will be completely honest. A lot of people are looking at them with positivity, but I just kind of see them as failures from the past and we're kind of throwing band-aids on failures from the past. I had a conversation with a Napoli supporter about Koulibaly because I was wondering why he was only 33, 30 so a million euros when a couple of years ago, Napoli was demanding 100 plus. And it sounds like he hasn't fallen off much. He's over the age of 30 at this point. But I look at this as a failure in the sense that we had Rudiger and we let Rudiger go and we had Christensen and we let Christensen go and we had Gerke and we paid, we sold him for next to nothing and we had Tamori and we sold him for next to nothing. And now we're spending 30 plus million on a player that in theory we should have never needed to replace. So people are excited about his signing and I go, yeah, I'm sure he's still a great player, but we should have never been in this position to begin with. And then we look at Raheem Sterling and I say the exact same thing. How many attacking players have we signed over the last couple of years? Obviously, we have Ziyech recently, we have Werner, we have Pulisic, and we have Hudson. We have all of these players that are attack-minded players, and we're already looking for new ones. So this is another player where we failed in other areas to get it right, and now we're trying to put a Band-Aid on it by getting a player that, honestly, he wasn't Pep's first choice. He wasn't a key component in Manchester City's side. They were more of a system. He came off as a little bit of a system player. And while I might be higher on Raheem Sterling than a lot of other people, he just kind of at this point looks like another one of our miscellaneous attacking players. We just have this hodgepodge of misfit, misattacking uh, players. And Raheem Sterling just kind of, as of right now, feels like another one for me. Yeah, that's interesting. I. I think it's for me. It's twofold, it, uh, or two two sides of the coin, I should say. On on one side, I can't disagree with you. I mean, th- he didn't leave Manchester City with Pep Guardiola begging him to stay because he was one of his most important players. On the other side of that, uh, you know, there does seem to be a little bit of a of a of a emphasis here, and I and I personally think this is coming from a from Tuchel's influence with Bowley on the strategy for transfer window. We're making a we're taking a lot of looks at players with Premier League experience, either in the Premier League now or having played there quite a lot in the past. And I, in my opinion, that is a result of Thomas Tuchel being incredibly frustrated trying to get these highly talented players. You mentioned Werner, mentioned you know obviously not Hudson Odoi came through Cobham, but you know these players with this talent that don't fit the league, that take too long to get transitioned in or aren't playing at a club where we can afford to let them have a full season and have three quarters of it be underwhelming so that they can finally get their feet under them and turn into something. And so I think he has really turned a focus to look at players that have shown they don't need a bunch of time to bet in. I mean, he can take Raheem Sterling and he can start him at Everton, and he probably will be one of our better players. I thought he was in the preseason matches he played. Again... Not to say that I think Raheem Sterling is going to come in and, and lead the league in goals, but but I I I like the idea. There is some merit there to the idea of a if Timo Werner leaves this summer, and it sounds like he still might. Again, I you know we could just run out of breath just naming players that may or may not stay. But with the World Cup next summer, a lot of these guys do have a little more motivation. Some of them to not just sit on a wage and to go find playing time. And Leipzig is pretty interested in Werner, and I don't know. You maybe again, it's that blue-colored glasses. But I, you can excite me to start thinking about a player who scored a hundred goals in the, you know, and not all in Premier League competitions, but at a at a team like City. Like his his return is incredible for both Liverpool and City. So that one I'm pretty excited about. I, and and I'm just to jump back to Kuwabali. So I agree with you completely. This is a band-aid over Rudiger leaving. I guess where I come in and have some some patience there is we lost Rudiger because of our freaking club owner being part of our for sale through because of a because of a war. So I I don't we yeah I I was very disappointed that Rudiger left for free, particularly after I felt like I was pretty bullish on him. Even after that first year, it was pretty slow and pretty disappointing. It looked like the league was going to pass him by, and and I. I love that guy. He was he we he was spine. He was steel. I liked his his willingness to go out and create some confrontation with teams. He wasn't going to take take it on the chin. 
but you know, that writing was on the wall like six months ago. So I, I guess for me, it's like, again, this is why this is so hard for me to think through, like, is this good? Is this bad? Where are we? Because it's all about your matter of perspective and saying, well, you're right. It is a bandaid, but should we be happy that this new ownership seemed to find a pretty good bandaid or be concerned that that is even our good things are just that they're just band-aids. Well, it's really scary that you use those terms to re- describe Raheem Sterling, that he's gone to other places and he scored so many goals in the Premier League. Cause we've heard that before. We heard that with Fernando Torres, but most recently all we kept hearing last year about Lukaku was he went to Italy and he scored so many goals. And we heard that about Timo Werner and he was in Germany and he scored so many goals. We hear that about, about all of these players that they scored all of these goals. And the second they put on that blue shirt, they lose their ability to put the ball in the back of the net. And I mean, Raheem Sterling's one goal he scored for us was a little bit of fortune. So hopefully that's a sign of things to come. But at the same time, a player's success at another club should not be an indictment on how they're going to perform for us. And that's my concern about Raheem Sterling. I do have to throw a little bit of shade at Thomas Tuchel because since the moment he took over managing role at this club, he has not shown signs of improvement in the attack. Our attack has never been the most potent or dangerous attack in the world. And there are times where they look lost out there. So is it the players? Is it all of these players? Um, There have been times they've all looked good. But for the most part, it should also be on the manager not being able to find a system that can incorporate these players, these are good players. I'm not going to go here and say that these are bums out there that we signed. Somehow, Thomas Tuchel has not been able to get the best of anyone, honestly. You can look at any of that forward line. He hasn't gotten the best of Zayic. He hasn't gotten the best of Pulisic. He hasn't gotten the best of Lukaku, of Warner, of uh, Havertz. So some blame has to be tossed at the manager as well. Yeah, and here's where I'm going to get off the fence sitting and sort of hemming and hawing and and say where I where I where I don't see direction. And that's, again, I brought it up before with you, but that's the midfield. Because to me, nothing that we do seems to be focused on strengthening the solidity of our midfield. When I say solidity, I don't mean quality. I mean actual solidity. Jorginho can get blown away in the wind, and I actually find him a fairly useful player. But, you know, in Golo Conte, you saw his value... Uh, dude, Nacy preseason match, but he was also, I thought it was pretty apropos. Yeah, it wasn't for the normal reasons, but he was also missed most of preseason, just like he often misses big stretches of the season because health is consistently a concern. Uh, you know, Kovacic is a particular style of midfielder. He is not a, you know, a, a steel, a spine kind of player. And, and nobody that we're talking about, be it Frankie De Jong, be it, you know, I think, like I said, I'm I'm thrilled about Chukwemeka coming to Chelsea, but he's not going to solidify the midfield. If they play him in the midfield, it's going to be another attacking-type player. And so, you know, again, we, we've got a 1,000 targets out there in the transfer window. None of them are somebody that, you know, again, I'm only going to use the name Declan Rice because that's that would be my prototype for what I what I imagine in this player but but there are others out there that do an impression or some version of of that that to me that's where I go I my question to Tuchel would be okay there's obviously some effort here that you'd like to have some flexibility in formation which I'm excited about but we saw in that Arsenal match exactly what I thought would happen if we tried to play a four-back system without solidifying the midfield. There was so much space everywhere. And a player like Odegaard, who's good, but there's a lot of good attacking creative players in the Premier League, he was in acres of space, and not just in midfield regions, but in areas around our 18-yard, I mean, I mean, all around the goal. He was just in space, and you could see guys looking at each other like, what, how are people getting in space? That That's terrifying to me because I don't, not only do I think, okay, it's easy to say in a, in a preseason match, maybe that's not the best version that can be, and surely a few months from now we can have improved on that performance. But I don't think we have the personnel to do it, and I don't see us attempting to get the personnel to do it. So that's where I get sort of off the like, you know, hard to say here and who's going to come in. I none of the names that are that are here as we as we sit here, you know, a couple days into August are names that are going to come in and provide that spine like we think about old Chelsea with, you know, right up the center of the pitch. It's like that's where we're reliable. And so we have all these players that can play out wide, they can play on the fringes, they can do certain things. 
but who's that guy that you say, okay, we want to play the 5-3-2 now, but now we want to switch to a 4-4-2 or a 4-2-3-1 or something, and who's going to be shielding our back four so that an Odegaard isn't just everywhere? Well, what, Jorginho? I mean, obviously not. Conte? Uh, no. So that that's that's the scary part to me and where I start to genuinely say – you know, I think I could make. I think I could get behind arguing fully for Tuchel if I could see that. Then I could at least sit here and tell you, Julian, ah, nah, man, he's trying. He's really going for that thing. We just haven't made it happen. But I can't tell you that because there is seemingly only an effort to bring in more attackers to potentially fix our finishing woes. Which, as you rightly pointed out, <laughs> it's not about just having a magical finisher. It's this system. So. Um, you know, I, I'll get I'll get off here and let and let you you know fire back. But I, yeah, to me, that's where I am still very concerned. And nothing that we're doing do I see as a matter of letting the dust settle. It's a matter of I I don't think I think we're I think we're missing pretty big here on this. Well, that's going to be my second swipe at Tuchel, and my biggest swipe at Tuchel, honestly, is it's become pretty clear that Bowley has allowed him to pick and choose what he prioritizes with acquisitions for the club. And for whatever reason, he has completely neglected midfield, which is not our most important thing, but by far our most important thing. And I'm going to say this about Jorginho real quick, because there are people on both sides of this fence that absolutely love and absolutely hate. He is probably the most divisive player in this club. Jorginho is the most specialist player in our club by far. And unless you're going to build the entire club around him, he has too many deficiencies to be a regular player in this squad. And that's been the issue for so many years. He plays exceptionally well with Kovacic. I will give him that. But the two of them provide little to no defensive solidity. He doesn't play well with Conte, and that's on both of them because they just never seem to have the chemistry. Conte's not in the positions that Jorginho wants him to be. He also doesn't have the same sort of passing intuition that Kovacic has. While at the same time, Jorginho really lacks any sort of defensive cover with Conte. So you're losing out in any of these combinations with Jorginho. Same thing with Kovacic and Conte. They aren't exactly the most ideal fit for each other. So that entire midfield needs an overhaul. And what's been kind of funny is, you know Frankie de Jong significantly better than I do. You're Dutch, so you followed him with the national team. However, I feel he's a good signing. He's one of those players that we just need to overhaul the entirety of that midfield structure, starting from the defensive side of things. And while he's maybe not the most defensive-minded player, at least he's a little bit more defensive-minded than somebody like Jorginho. And a little bit more than Kovacic, who was never actually brought in to be a holding or defensive midfielder in any capacity. Maybe pairing him with Conte gives us some at least additional defensive stability, but as of right now, it's at the very least a start, in my opinion. Yeah, well, you nailed it, Julian. You want to start getting my heart fluttering? Just, just mention Frankie De Jong, right? Because as a Dutch guy, I've been, I've been excited about him since he was a young guy. And the idea of having a player like that on Chelsea, it's just kind of for me like, oh man, that'd be the best of both worlds. But I'll be honest with you, as you said, he is a, he is better than Kovacic and Virginio at that role. I think that's more of an indictment on those two than it is anything, you know, like it's not a big thing like Frankie de Jong's going to bring any solidity. I, that being said, I'm with you. I think that what I see here with all this you know, chaos to some degree, but w w what I see from afar from this window is we are trying to move the goal. We're trying to move a lot. We're trying to go from where we are now to somewhere pretty different. And it's not easy, and we have some huge challenges to do that. And I don't know if we'll do it well or not. We may not. Tuchel may. This, I think that, um, well, I'll get into it in a minute about how well, his longevity, but I think that um, it, it's very hard to say with any confidence that that will happen that way. But there is a part of me that's like, man, I can see part of this. I, I do think we need to refresh and reinvigorate and not just add one piece or kind of like support Jorginho a little. We, we need to kind of have totally different options. And so I'm willing a little bit to have, if there's ultimately going to be a, a change and we are going to accomplish some of these things and not just play the same style of football, then I'm okay. Maybe even, you know, I don't want to finish six, but I'm okay finishing fourth or I'm okay this, this season with us not lighting the world on fire. 
but I think that there's no guarantee. I think I think it's just as likely that we could not light the world on fire this season and sort of lose momentum for whatever we are trying to do. So, you know, I, I, it's not exactly, you know, one or the other. But, you know, I, I guess... I guess I'll let's just as we're kind of you know maybe midway here. Let me ask you this: What do you think? You know, you you said you think we could, you know, finish anywhere from third from third to seventh. Would you be happy with a third or fourth place finish? I mean, if we end up with champions, let's just leave it at that. If we end up with champions league football at the end of this year, do you think there's a pretty good chance you're going to be feeling like we had a successful season? If if we scrape fourth place on the final day of the season, I will be ecstatic. Because right now I feel like we are on such thin ice. We're spending so much money. And if we lose that Champions League revenue, I can only imagine the dark days ahead of us because Bully can keep spending money, but it's it's really rough right now. I don't mean to paint such a bleak picture, but we have contracts expiring. We're going to be in this exact same scenario next year. The reason we had to replace so many defenders was because we let contracts expire. Jorginho and Conte's Conte's contracts expire next year as well. And while a lot of people won't be sad to see them go, those are still two players that we could have got some return on if we were going to let them go. But instead, they might walk out for free and we have a couple more spots that we need to fill. And that's going to continue being an issue as time's actually not our friend at this moment, not until we get some structure in place. But right now, it just feels like we're throwing cards at a dartboard and seeing what sticks and seeing if we can figure out with no real direction. Yeah. So along that vein, you know, with the pre, you know, there, there is, there's, there's pressure there. Like as there always is at Chelsea, it seems like, you know, we've changed, we've changed ownership even, and yet we're still chaotic and we're still lots of pressure and things are not, nobody's sure they're heading in a good direction. So I guess some things at Chelsea never change. Um, but, but, you know, let's, let's move over to the player side of things. Obviously there's a lot of, lot of pressure on Tuchel. Actually, before I say the player side, I, you know, I heard, I was listening to, to a conversation yesterday kind of about the, particularly focused on the top six in the Premier League and saying, you know, what manager in the top sixth is under the most pressure? Who's the most likely to be let go? It's Tuchel, right? I mean, it's almost hard to make an argument elsewhere. Now, some of that is to do with the, in the specific circumstances, obviously Guardiola and Klopp are not at risk of getting fired. So just take them off the list. So now we're talking, you know, Conte, no way right now. Like, look at what he's building at, at Tottenham. And will he and Levy have a great relationship long-term? Almost assuredly not. But he's certainly not on the hot seat. I think Mikel Arteta could turn that team into some kind of, like, uh, roller derby team, and they'd still support him. I don't think Arteta's under any pressure. I just think that that's where they're at as a club. There's a less pressure, a little less expectation, and they have committed to building behind him and have had a little success in doing so, at least enough to say, no way are we going to stop this direction that we're in. So, you know, I, I think that puts you now at Man U and Chelsea, and Man U's, they barely had a manager for three days. So, you know, surely they're going to give him a little time. And so, you know, when I, when I first heard somebody mention that and say, you know, Tuchel's the guy in the hot seat, it's like, what are you talking about, man? He's leading our transfer business. He's got a great relationship with our new owner. But the reality is he is because we're the club that is not doing what Arsenal's doing and saying, okay, we're going to rebuild behind someone. We are demanding the constant success through those transitions. And so, um, you know, I, I, I find that interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you two questions here. One, do you agree that Tuchel is, is, is the manager under pressure the most in the top six? And then, and then secondly, from a player side of things for Chelsea, you know, who, who's the player with the most pressure with the hottest seat from a player side this year to make things work? I, you know, stay away from maybe a fringe player that's not going to make it, but you know, somebody that you think like, Hey man, this is the year we, we got to see it from this guy. Well, funny enough, I don't know if I necessarily agree with you that Tuchel's on as much of a hot seat. It's one of those things that by default, okay, yes, he's not going to be outlasting Klopp or Guardiola. I'll give him that, or even Arteta for that reason, or even Conte. However, it seems like Bowley has kind of said, you're my guy, I'm going to back you fully. Even if we don't get results, I'm looking at this long-term because you know what you're doing, even if that's not necessarily true. So I don't think he's under any pressure or under any hot seat. Whereas Manchester United, they're quick to pull the trigger. So if they start out kind of poor, if they go six, seven games and they're struggling, you can already tell that their manager is going to be on the hot seat. 
However, I feel like if we're going eight, nine, ten games and we're struggling, I feel like there won't be any pressure under Tuchel. Now, when Abramovich was in charge, that would have been the case. But given that we have a new ownership group, I feel like they want to leave a good first impression and kind of commit to a plan and a guy that may not be the right one. But they are, in my opinion, going to be a lot more ready to do it than Manchester United will be. That's just my thoughts. So. No, I and I think Ten Hag's the other guy, right? That that if it isn't, it'll be him. And I, man, you want to get me excited inside? I I could just start dreaming the scenarios in which he gets fired because there there's so many ways right now where, in some ways, the same way we are. If you if you want to start imagining, you know, well, what, man, what if this goes wrong for Man U and this disaster with Ronaldo and Ten Hag can't get his players on board and. And man, their their midfield's McFred, and these you know it's these things. It's like that. I can easily imagine that being a disaster. I think in part just because of you know he's brand new. So I I still I'm I think I'm with you that from a you know if 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 he if Ten Hag's not the answer, it's only because of his longevity there and that he's so new. They're gonna let him you know fail even, but. I, I do, yeah, because it's ironic almost. In some ways, you could argue Tuchel's as secure as he's ever been at Chelsea. And so to, to be making a argument simultaneously that he's the most likely to be let go of the top six, in some ways just tops, talks to some of the security of, I think, Arteta and Conte on top of what was already true in Guardiola and Klopp. Um, but I, sp- I suppose we'll see. For me, the, p- the players that really stand out... You know, I'm not sure Kai Havertz isn't on that list for me. He's a player I like a lot. I think is very talented. I think will come good at Chelsea. But I don't know what he is, right? I mean, is he a number nine? Is he? Is he? he, he Try to play him on the wing. Some he's versatile, but he's almost that versatility that creates a problem because he doesn't demand to be somewhere and to kind of work around him. So he's certainly a player that's going to get a lot of opportunity to make himself very, very um, impactful and to be, uh, to, to completely come good on that signing, but I, I'm not sure we've gotten out of him what we're looking for. And, and the other one for me is Mendy. Um, I, you know, we're not going to do anything about it. I think we're going to probably stump up about 75% of Kepa's wages so he can go play elsewhere. Um, and and we're bringing in Slanina for the, for the future, or at least to be part of the, the top keeper mix for the future. So Mendy's certainly not under the hot seat from, you know, they're not talking about any other goalkeeper names. But, oh, man, I, he's a guy I liked, particularly when he came in his first season. But, but I think he's, he's, a, he's been streaky or sketchy, if you want to be even less kind, for, for, for large stretches of time. And what I've seen in preseason does not tell me that that's a guy playing in good form, um, particularly even Udinese. Their, their goal was not only a, a pretty bad deflection but also a very awkward attempt at the second shot and he just I don't know that's a guy that if we have some some questions and especially early season sorting out new players and formations we don't want our goalie sort of being in in real average form there so so those are the two to me anybody else that sticks out to you on players that really like this is going to be a defining year man they've got it they've got to make good well, I'll start by disagreeing with you on Kai Havertz. I feel like he's fine. Um, Tuchel's a big fan of his. He's so versatile that no matter if something happened with Tuchel, that any manager that comes in is going to find a way to play him. And even if he hasn't been playing to the best of his ability, he's still such an amazing talent and such a desired player for so many clubs around the world that I don't imagine that he's on any sort of hot seat. He's so young, too. He's still only 23, so... He'll come good. I have no concerns about him. I can see Mendy. That's a very fair argument. But as I kind of think about the players we have on this club, I mean, in theory, Werner's under no pressure. Pulisic is under no pressure because they already have one foot out the door. I don't have any reservations that they actually want to leave this club. And I wouldn't necessarily blame them. It hasn't been the most stable or fruitful for either of their careers. And you have other players like Jorginho who... So as one put out the door, I mean, his contract's almost up and I would not be surprised if he left, If especially if Tuchel was gone. I would not be surprised if he left for free next season. But the player that I'm going to say, and this is a little bit of an odd one, but I feel like this is very relevant, especially with everything that happened today, is actually Ben Chilwell. And the thing about Ben Chilwell that a lot of people forget is when Tuchel first came in, Ben Chilwell sat the bench for a little while. 
I don't think Tuchel's necessarily the biggest fan of Ben Chilwell to begin with. And he is one of our most important players and the fans absolutely love him. But the fact that we're actually looking at a left back kind of sounds like to replace him as well. We're willing to get rid of one of our very best youth prospects in a very long time, especially on the defensive side of the ball, to bring in a left back. That shows that there's a severe lack of confidence in Ben Chilwell. So that's the one I'm kind of concerned about. Oh, man, I'm so with you. I think that's something that just as Chelsea fans in general should be way more, uh, not aware, but sort of alert, I guess, uh, to is Ben Chilwell's status. Um, I don't think anybody would argue that he came back and lit the world on fire during preseason, but I do think that was sort of expected, and he's recovering from injury, and, oh, it's Ben Chilwell, he's really solid, He'll be. we know what we're getting out of him. I don't think so, man. I think you look at what, where you, how aggressive Chelsea's being for Mark Kukurea, I, I think it tells you something. I also think it tells you they have some interest in him playing left center back because I do not think they are, you know, they're not going to go, I, in my opinion, to go spend 50-plus million uh, on a player to just say, all right, Ben, you know, you're kind of the backup now. I, I, I just, there's nothing about that I can imagine. He's he's a player's player. Like you said, the fans love Chilwell. But it makes a lot of sense to me all of a sudden. It goes from making almost no sense to making a lot of sense if Kukurea, once I started talking to some Brighton fans who said, you know, look, he played a lot of left left center back, and, and I don't watch Brighton every week, but, you know, say he, he did play a lot of left center back, and he played pretty well. Yeah, he's not huge, and yeah, that's in theory where we're going to play Koulibaly, but Okay, so at least you're saying, all right, he's a, he's a pretty effective left center back, all right. We play a lot of that three three center back defense. And then, of course, that's where he's used to be playing, is at a left back or left wing back in Chilwell. So, you know, suddenly is it such a waste to bring in a high-dollar player who may not, isn't going to be Chilwell's backup, but it's going to be a, a a very used player, probably, in my opinion, if we sign Kukurea. We'll count the minutes, but I I would argue he will I would bet on him playing more minutes for Chelsea than Ben Chilwell this year. So I that's that I am so with you and I think it's it's forced by injury, but we just man, I'd love to be wrong because I think Chilwell is I really like the guy. He's how can you not? He's he's good vibes. But um, you know, I, I think that's an area of, of some concern where so 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 I'll pause that there, and then I think pretty separate from that is this part about Levi Colwell, because I, I don't think, you know, you can be excited about Kukurea or not, and also be, ex- you know, not excited about the idea of Colwell leaving. And again, we'll see what the final terms come out to be, but if it ends up like we think it is, that it's probably going to be a, a sale in the mid- in, in the region of... 20 to 25 million pounds and and a buyback clause somewhere between 40 maybe 50 million pounds uh, that you know I, I obviously anything with a buyback is a lot more attractive than than what we've done with Gehi or Tamori I Colwell's by every account's a higher level prospect I just these are these are the conversations this one in particular where I guess I I end up often with people with these conversations and say saying well, well what do you want yeah I wish Golo would stay, and then he'd be playing a lot next year. But our managers clearly made made it in his mind. Colwell is not ready to be a big minute player next year, and Colwell believes he is. And other players, other teams in the Premier League do too. So you know, there's a human element here. What? Yeah, it would be great if everybody agreed was on the same page, but they're not. So what do you do to try to? get something valuable for your asset while also trying to get your asset an opportunity at least to get that asset back in the future while still saying, look, we're not going to sacrifice Chelsea Football Club this year to let you play a ton of minutes so that you don't leave. We're not we're not Southampton. We're not Brighton. So, you know, again, that's a lot of stuff there. Grab whatever you want. But th- that's for me, where I go, yeah, I, I would have, I'd love him to stay. I'd love him to be our best center back. But our manager says he's not, and he doesn't think he's ready to be one of our starters. So, I, you know, as long as he's our manager, I, what, what other solution is there for this guy to be fully committed? The other part about alone is like, why does Brighton go and spend all this time to, per, you know, like progress the career of Levi Colwell when in eighteen months he's going back to Chelsea? When he's their player, of course he is. And so to me, a buyback is not perfect because they they rarely actually come through. 
but it is something different than just saying what we did with Abraham, with Tamori, with Gehi, which was sort of just like, wow, we really just sort of let these guys depart for what is far less than anybody thinks they'll be worth in a very short amount of time. Well, that, this is going to be fun. And you kind of uh, beat me to one punchline I was going to hit you with on that. But let, let me start with this. What justification has Tuchel earned for doing this again? Because he's the exact same one that said the same thing about Tammy Abraham. Tammy Abraham was not good enough. And he barely gave him any playing time. And of course, Tammy Abraham went to Roma, had an amazing season. And I guarantee you, Tammy Abraham does not want to come back. None of these players want to come back. The punchline I was going to hit you with was, okay, we put a buyback clause. How many players have we bought back with the buyback clause? Good players. The answer is zero, not just because we're not going to do it, but because the players don't want to come back. It's almost as if it's a scam to convince the fans that uh, these players have maybe hope of coming back to the club and playing for the club, when the reality is if Levi Colville is sold, we're never going to see him again. And if we do see him again, then it's going to be in a Manchester City shirt or it's going to be in a Liverpool shirt as he's going to be playing for one of our rivals at the very top of the game, just like Kevin De Bruyne did, uh, Mohamed Salah did, all of these players that we continuously let go year after year because we're selling the farm. This is a reference that Todd Bowley will understand. We're selling the farm for players that are of age now and they're not going to win us a championship. We're not going to win any titles with Kukurea over... Levi Colwell right now. And while Kukurea is younger and he has the best years ahead of him, it's not to say that in a couple years even, Levi Colwell won't be a better player. In theory, Levi Colwell's ceiling is a lot higher. For those that have never actually watched him play, I sent you a text message when he was 16 years old saying, this kid's absolutely amazing. He's big. He's great on the ball. He's a very modern player. He's got so much to his game. And if he continues along this path, then he will be one of our best players ever. And it's no surprise that he set such high expectations for himself at Huddersfield last season. And I will put you on the spot for this one because I sent you a message at the start of the season and I said, Tuchel's not going to take any of these youth players. The second he has an opportunity to sell them for something else, he's going to do it. And you said you didn't think that that was the case for Levi Colwell, and here we are. So I'm wondering, who's Tuchel got to sell? At what point are you going to stop believing that this guy has anything but a short-term plan in mind? Well, look, a whole other side of this conversation is now that uh, Roman Abramovich and Marina Kravinskaya are gone. Uh, I'm not sure Simon Johnson and Nizar Kinsella and uh, Matt Law, let alone anybody else, has any freaking clue anymore, right? So so I'll say that. Like, anything anymore from anybody I take with a grain of salt, even more so than normal. However, universally across the board, it's been reported all summer that Chelsea and Tuchel were desperately trying to not let Colwell leave on a permanent deal, right? So... I again I this is the part where I go. Le- Levi Colwell is a talented 25-year-old adult who's wealthy and has a big career ahead of him. I he has a say in this and I don't expect him to say I'll wait around forever. But I also, you know, let, let's take Wesley Fofana because uh, I again I think that's somebody that Chelsea may end up with and and maybe it's so stupid to go spend a 70 80 million euros 80 million pounds on on Wesley Fofana when we're when we've got Levi, Levi Colwell. Well guess what? Wesley Fofana is no doubt about it one of the centerpiece figures for a Premier League side and has been so. Levi Colwell has no Premier League experience. So to me, if those two are equals, that is a Chelsea bias, or at least a, woof, man, I, no Leicester fan's going to agree with you there. There's no evidence to say, yes, there's evidence to say Levi Colwell is a tremendous talent. There's evidence to say he can be successful in the Premier League. But there isn't any evidence to say he is, and he this is what he is as a Premier League player. And so the, for me, the best I can do is to take our manager and to say he says he's not yet. And Levi Colwell says, yes, I am, and I'm not going out alone again. So you get to this eventual crux of a conversation where it's like, yeah, the, the rubber's going to hit the road, and he is either going to have to force, he's going to force the manager's hand to play him more than he believes he should, or he's going to force the club's hand to give him opportunity elsewhere. And for me, this seems like a solution, or at least an attempt at a solution, which is, I guess, trying to have it the best you can, where you say, yes, we're going to have to spend, we're going we're gonna to let this guy go. We obviously recognize that he's an incredible talent or we wouldn't put a 50 million buyback clause in. 
Yes. Do I think that's as good as like an extended loan? Hell no. But it tells me that there's a strategy here to really identify this guy as a key player and someone they want to see as valuable, but they can't. Again, for me, I think what what the solution is, okay, just play him then. Just start him. Don't sign another center back. Don't sign Fafana. Don't sign anybody else and just play him. Well, we're, we aren't Brighton. We aren't Southampton. We did the, what Tino Livermento a couple years. Like, do we wish he was our starting? He, he, he blew out his knee. So there are examples where this goes really badly for us, but there are also a lot of examples that, don't and they just kind of stop being talked about and then it's like well we won't bring them up the next time but we still have all these other guys and yeah we look like idiots compared to what Tammy Abraham's done to us but Tammy Abraham was actually a pretty successful Premier League player with Premier League goals to his name for a whole season or two whereas that's to me not where Levi Colwell is yet but we look at the opposite side of that. The two most important players in this squad had no Premier League experience when they were put in the squad. Mason Mount had just come from Derby, and Reese James was at what Wigan at the time. These players had no Premier League experience, yeah, and playing and like them, eight positions at Wigan too. It took the manager's belief in them to just give them a chance. And here's the opposite side of the coin. I want to say. What player that we did bring back that was so highly rated, like Reese James, like Mason Mount, even Tammy Abraham, came back into the club and failed. The only one you could possibly say is maybe Ruben Loftus-Cheek, but even then he suffered through injuries and managerial changes, and he was sent back on loan nonstop, where he never had like a complete season in the same way Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham, and Reese James had. Tuchel is not doing himself any favors with what happened last season. His judgment isn't a be-all, end-all sort of thing. He actually showed that he can make the wrong mistake, and he can make a very expensive and a really big wrong mistake. And I feel like, I will say right now, he's making another wrong mistake with Levi Colwell. It's frustrating. That's just how I feel about it. No, and I think it's very fair, man. Like, I, I think Levi Colwell, and, and, and honestly, when I say this, you're – for all the years we've known each other, like you're the person I always go to and talk to first about anything related to, uh, you know, youth academy prospects, uh, not just for Chelsea, but but across the league and across the world. And so, you know, it's not to not in any sense to try to to say ah nah like that's not true. I, you know, I I think that that's very possible, and I think that there is definitely a potential future in which Levi Colwell is one of the most standout center backs in the Premier League or the world or whatever league he's playing in at the time, and that we're sitting here talking about the frustration of the fact that that guy we did you know that that we had identified him at in in the early teenage years as who should be front and center for Chelsea, and we had him and we let him go, but. Again, it, it it is hard for me to have these conversations in isolation because I I you know I I think we're also attempting as I see it now we're not just mortgaging the future whether we agree with the plan you know Slanina uh, Eddie Beach Omari Hutchison from Arsenal you know uh, Carney Chukwemeka from Aston Villa like. We've gone out and signed five massive prospects between the ages of, say, 18 and 20 this summer. So it, it there's clearly, whether we whether we agree with the strategy or not, there is a big investment going on for the future first team of Chelsea. And so to me, I don't think it's a naivety of leaving Colwell out of that and thinking he falls through the cracks. It's a, this guy's not in that time frame for the future. He wants now. He wants now. I mean, Reese James, yeah, he was so good right away. Mason Mount was so good right away. But I, I think that there was opportunity for them in a way that's a little different than what Colwell has in front of him. Or at least I shouldn't say I think that, but at least that's what that's, Maybe it was just the difference from Lampard. Maybe maybe Tuchel wouldn't have given Reese James or Mason Mount a chance. But I I don't know. I, I think we're going to see him give Carney Chukwameka a chance this year. So I, that's where it gets hard for me to just make it black and white and say, well, Tuchel isn't going to this X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, he isn't with that player, but simultaneously we're trying to do it with other players. So um, that's where, again, I, I would pay so much money to be a fly on, fly on the wall for any of these conversations internally and actually get to know, like, how much is this a player's desire to demand their situation versus a manager's inflexibility to offer opportunity to youth versus a owner 
who wants to identify his own young targets so that they can be his youth. I mean, I, ooh, man, I mean, all of that to me is debatable and where I get a little, it's a little harder for me to have the conviction of frustration, even though I think like, yeah, is Levi Colwell leaving the Chelsea system a good thing? Hell no, right? Yeah, uh, I don't really know how to uh, respond to that. You, you do make some good points on that, honestly. I am going to be displeased with whatever. I just, I've always felt that managers want players like with short-term goals in mind to be around the ages of like 24 to 30. And immediately that means that these players, whether or not they are good enough, I think Levi Colwell is good enough. If not now, when we had two center backs leave, this is a perfect opportunity for him to come in. He is the exact player we need to, but he's got great versatility. He fits what we're trying to do, but he's, if he's not going to get the opportunity now, then it's just a harsh reality that some of these players are never going to get this opportunity. It's deflating. And to be clear, I think he should. I think this is the time, and he should be getting that opportunity. Unless there is something, where, and, and I know this isn't the case, that he's demanding to, you know, some specific number of minutes or, so, you know, I, I get wanting to understand your pathway. I also understand as a, as a sports coach myself, when you've got your, your freshman in high school or you've got your, you know, your newest, youngest rookies to the team and they're the ones that want immediate affirmation and immediate clarity on exactly what this looks like. It's a little frustrating as a coach because you're like, I don't know. I was hoping you were going to show me that, not tell me that. Again, I think that's unfair on Levi because he's had years of showing that, and, and I do think this is his time and his opportunity. I I would love to see him, you know, move on Alonso, move on Espilicueta, bring in Cucurea, and let Colwell play a lot of Silva's minutes. I think Silva, you know, I, I love Tiago Silva, but I would rather transition a young player with a big bright future than continue to really try to lean on a, a 75-year-old center back, right? So, I, and again, I'd almost sound, I, well, because I, I exaggerated his age, but I, I like Tiago Silva a lot, but I'm, I still wish this was Colwell. I guess I just, there, there's there's a part of me that, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think through how a guy that I have, you know, comes to the conclusion that Levi Colwell's not ready at Chelsea and, and kind of try to work almost, work almost backwards to, to understand it. Um, so, you know, I, I guess as this is one of the main conversations definitely wanted to have, and we've gotten a good chance to talk about some of the, the squad actual pieces and, and, and formationally. Um, but let me ask you this. You know, I don't know if you've gotten to look much at our, our at the way our season actually opens, but, you know, I <laughs> I think it's always interesting looking at the schedule and trying to kind of predict how things will go or, or you know, how you might run yourself into, into a streak of two, three wins in a row or maybe a little hot water it's a very interesting start to the season for me. Um, I, you know, you, you, the the Everton match in itself to me is not very interesting, except for of course it is because it's Frank Lampard. And oh man, there's just this going to be this knot in my stomach from now until kickoff about like Everton's probably going to get relegated this year. And I don't know if you saw Dominic Calvert Lewin got he's out six weeks and and has been confirmed not to play against Chelsea. That's certainly not going to help them get off to a hot start. But, man, it's not hard for me to imagine that Everton, yeah, they might get relegated, but they also might beat us week one with Frank Lampard, right, while we're still this chaotic. There was there was a while where we really struggled at Goodison Park. So with all of those factors, especially at the start of the season, I mean, it's always that first match that catches teams off guard. So I could easily see us dropping points in this one. Um even a draw I could foresee. I would be really surprised if we took this one comfortably, especially given that we're still integrating so many of these players. We're definitely not set on the way our squad's going to look for the season either. So this is very much a game I could see us dropping points in. Bingo. And then, you know, what really scares me is it's not that match. It's the next week. You're Yeah, you're at home, and it's Tottenham. And yes, does Tottenham have a nightmare trying to get results against us? Sure. But... Do you think Antonio Conte's squad is going to be real intimidated coming to Stamford Bridge on the second week of the season? Uh, probably not, especially after they've had some pretty good continuity this summer. So, you know, suddenly, suddenly, what that does to me is put a lot of it puts extra pressure on that Everton match because if you do get some kind of disappointing draw or God forbid a loss, 
suddenly you're looking at week two and Tottenham and thinking we got to beat Tottenham or else we could be six points back of Liverpool and City and and frankly Tottenham and, and Arsenal two weeks into the season. So let's not go there because I really don't think that we're going to lose to Everton week one. But it, it, it is sort of like I've, I've seen all these people, these, you know, prognosticating like this is a really rough start for Chelsea these first four matches. And it's like, really? Everton might get relegated. Leeds was barely avoided relegation at the end of last year. And Leicester is as confusing a team this summer as you could find. I mean, they're 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 presumably in a pretty big financial mess right now. And, you know, Schmeichel just left. Madison's maybe out the door. They're, we're, we're going after Fafana. They're trying to get rid of Yuri Tillemans. I mean, I don't think that's the toughest four matches. But, man, if you don't start out Everton with three points, then suddenly you might be through the first two weeks with just one one, one or two points. And, and now, yeah, do you have a lot of confidence going to Leeds? I don't think so. So, I again fascinating uh, here uh, to to look at the start. I, I just I'm with you. It's very hard to imagine that we go to Everton and just sort of get like a th- you know two nil three to one four to one kind of a win. I just can't see it. However, I, I'll take what I can get there at Goodison Park on Saturday if we can walk away with three points. I uh, I you know I think that does take some of the pressure off the next week and put us back in the driver's seat for that home match against Tottenham. Um, you know, let me ask you this. I, I I've kind of honestly covered a lot of the things as I think going into the season. Um, what else stands out to you? What else you want to talk about here about the season before uh, before we get it going? I think if we can somehow keep within contention by the time we get to October, we have a pretty decent schedule throughout the month of October. That's one thing I looked at when the fixture list came out. Our most difficult match should be, in theory, Manchester United at home. And a lot of the other matches come against teams that, in theory, shouldn't be on the same level as us. So that's a month where we should really take a lot of points and hopefully build some momentum going forward. I... That's probably going to be one of the most important stretches of the season because I can't imagine that we're going to make a very strong run at the Champions League. I can't imagine that we're going to have a strong run at any of the cup competitions, but they are cup competitions, so you never know how the look of the draw is going to fall for us. Our our best hope, really, the best case scenario I can see is maybe we pick up a cup, whether it be the FA Cup, the League Cup, and... Uh, perform to third place in the league but i'm really concerned about the teams around us and i mean i will say it this is probably the least optimistic i've been going into a season i i really don't know what to expect from this club it's the least i've been able to make predictions as to what to expect from us well i think i think that's a perfect place for us to end it here because i think that's the thing um i love i love talking to you and our different viewpoints or just different outlooks on this um i but man you want to talk we'll end it right here on something that we agree on the most is get ready for anything this year guys because this year uh like i said there there are some really exciting things to look forward to and and frankly like i said julian you and i are going to be doing another podcast together soon um certainly you know maybe after the everton match or a match right there soon after and you know we may be talking about uh what a great performance we saw from frankie de Jong or from mark kukurea or you know, who, God, God, hopefully it's not uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who's the most recent forward rumors we've seen today, but uh, is Memphis Depay, Cristiano Ronaldo, God forbid. Uh, that That's crazy to me. Like, I do think there are some players that are going to be pretty important and impactful to Chelsea's season that we couldn't even name you right now. So um, I, I think that only adds to the um, margin of potential outcomes for the for the club as a whole come come end of season. So... Um, Julian, I can't thank you enough for, for spending an hour here with me. I, 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 it's gotten me honestly even more excited about the season. Um, and, and has got me, um, on top of all the other things I had in mind here to watch out for on, on match day one at Everton. Now I've got another, another 20 or 30 in my mind as well. So, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, sir. And, uh, let me ask you this. Any final thoughts you'd like to add? Uh, no, that should cover it. I feel like we went into pretty detail depths to some of the things pertaining to this club but i'm looking forward to it always always looking forward to the season so thanks for having me as always absolutely my friend appreciate you and we'll have you back very soon and for those of you listening uh keep an eye out now that we're moving back into actual season time 
you can expect to find this podcast published at least twice a week. Probably be looking out for a, a match day review either uh, shortly after a match or, or at uh, the latest the following day. And then probably somewhere more like midweek. Um, obviously, we'll have some midweek match reviews as well when we have midweek matches. But uh, keep out, keep an eye out for stuff in the midweek. We're gonna have some off-topic stuff, club, you know, just random club talking points. Um, probably, probably highlighting a few individual players. Um, and, and one of my big passions also will be highlighting our uh, uh, Chelsea Chelsea women's team, who I just I just renewed my season tickets for and. Um, man, for those of you that that watch any of the women's Euros and, and England winning those Euros, uh, it, man, there's a lot of excitement. Uh, the top four teams have all sold out their season tickets um, and, and have done so. Uh, the U.S. women coming to play England women, so there will be a lot of there will be some attention for sure on this po- podcast for the for the Chelsea women as well. So I'm excited to bring all of that to you in the coming weeks. And and this guy right here, Julian Bravo, will probably be I'm sure a, a regular guest. So uh, tune in tune in soon to hear us. And until that time, we'll catch you later on the We Ain't Got No podcast.